Raising the Bets is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Raising the Bets, where a Catholic couple raising five kids outside of Boston. Join us as we share the joys and challenges of marriage, homeschool, and our adventures near and far as we make sense of the world and experience the best parts of our culture. I'm Don Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. That pause in there at the beginning kind of sounded like I wasn't sure where we were. <clears throat> I just I had the wrong breath. You know, when you're reading something out loud and you just get start with the wrong breath and you run out to, you know, before the end. Uh-huh. It sounds like there's a comma in the clause, but there isn't. Uh-huh. Anyway, sure. Let's talk about what we've been doing. What have you been doing, Melanie? Tell me all about it. Um, Just kidding. So, okay. (laughs) The kids went camping this weekend. The four big scouts went camping. They went uh, in December in a cabin. Let's let's not go crazy here. They didn't go outside in a tent. They were in a cabin. Although scouts do do that. We have done that. We did that in February a few years ago. If you go back and listen to that episode, it was 19 degrees that night. I slept in a tent. I'm glad I can say that now. You lived to tell the tale. I lived to tell the tale. I was not happy doing it. It was the (laughs) longest night ever. So, but these guys, they went camping and it was the annual Campsgiving. I guess it technically wasn't Campsgiving because it wasn't Thanksgiving weekend or there, but it was... A couple of weeks after. So it's. But why Why would that not count? I don't, I don't know. I, th- I think. Well, I, maybe I'm making up rules and regulations for, for what, what counts as Thanksgiving. But it's a tradition in Scouts where they they go and camping and have a they cook a Thanksgiving dinner outdoors. Uh, this was not quite all cooked outdoors. In fact, a lot of it was. The families made the side dishes and sent them along with the kids to be reheated uh, in the oven at the cabin that they were staying in. But they did make turkeys there. You know, as long as some things were cooked out of doors, I would not quibble. Yeah, I I think they smoked one turkey. I don't think they deep fried any. Um, they have in the past, though. Yeah, they've done garbage t- can turkey where they they put it under a clean garbage can like a new garbage can uh and pile coals around it so it makes like an oven that sort of thing so they've done it in various ways in the past they've deep fried them and that sort of stuff but um yeah i don't know how they did it. i have to ask how they did it. i couldn't go this time because i had recordings on saturday and uh so i just i couldn't get out of it but um but that's okay because they were fine. They we took them there. They were it was at Knobscott Reservation, which is about forty five minutes from our house. So I drove them up there Friday and then got out very early Sunday morning to drive up and pick them up. And but in in between, it was you, me, and Lucy. Mm-hmm. It was very quiet. Yes, poor Lucy. She was distressed at how quiet it was <laughs> and how. Yes. And there were no siblings to entertain her. She yeah. is, as the youngest of five, she is just not used to not being entertained. Right, right. I know we've talked about that before when we've gone camping without her, uh, you know, and she's here alone with just you and her. That's, she's just rattling around in the big house. But, well, so after I was done recording on Saturday, we uh, we had lunch, and I was like, you know, we should just, it's early, we should run over to Ikea. And because we had some things we needed to get still. A year later, so it's been a year since we moved back into the house after the disaster, and we were still at boxes in the living room because we needed another bookcase in the living room to unload onto. Somehow, we ended up with needing more shelf space. Um, There was lots of stuff that was on the floor before we moved out. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Uh, So we needed another bookcase to clear out those boxes and move things around. So... Uh, so we got another Billy, Billy bookcase, and we got a desk for the boys' room. For that has that is just dedicated Lego desk. That's essentially what it is right now. Right. In the future, it may be something different, but because Ben's get this puzzle board, it's like two feet by three feet. That is his Lego puzzle board that he and Lucy use. And it's just covered in Legos, 
and it has been living in the living room. Yeah, he wouldn't take it back to his bedroom. Yeah, well, he has no place to put it. It would have to be on the floor, and you know, and then you get kicked, uh, kicked and knocked over, and so we went and got this desk. It fits the t- the puzzle board. You can put the bins underneath. We got a couple little sorting bins for the Lego, so it was it's nice. We were a little concerned how he would feel about it when he got back, but he was happy. He liked it. Yeah. Anthony wasn't quite so sure. He's he's taking some time to get he doesn't like new things. He doesn't like change. He is set in his ways like an old man. Um but you also cleaned their room. Like I was- I did. I, I picked up all the Legos on the floor and it was a sea of Legos. And you know, all the dirty clothes that hadn't made it into the laundry <laughs> and all the dirty tissues and granola bar wrappers and you know it's a boys room a boys room did you clean out under the bed i did not but but actually the, under the bed was relatively clean mm. uh because it had one of them had cleaned it not that long okay. ago because i i did notice that when anthony was looking for his kindle he had to dive under the bed because it had fallen down the side <laughs> the far side I, of it i did not clean under the bed okay so uh so we did that, and th- these things went together pretty relatively easy. I mean, as far as having to assemble IKEA stuff, like the desk was pretty easy, yeah. And the little chairs that it came with, the billy was a little more work, especially it's the fastening it to the wall that is the pain. But I, so I did that. Um, I'm not so sure about the fasteners. I may end up getting heavier duty wall bolts. Yeah, although we no longer have children who are like trying to climb the furniture. Yeah, that's true. This is true. It should be fine. I'm I'm fairly certain that it's not going anywhere. <laughs> fairly. Um, I just don't want to hear a crash in the middle of the night. That would be the worst. Uh, so, yeah. So we did that. And then after we, we, we walked around Ikea. Ikea is such a, it's a people watching place, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is the, like, so not every place has an Ikea. And so we have the only Ikea in New England in the next town over. And there are people there from all over the world, like literally you hear you can hear a dozen languages as you walk through the maze. It is amazing. No pun intended. Uh huh. Um, so that's always a little bit of fun. Um, yeah. So we went through there. We uh, we did the five labors of Ikea, which is um, walking the maze, finding your stuff in the warehouse, getting through the checkout getting the stuff into your car, and then when you get home, assembling it. Those are the five labors of Ikea. Yeah, the the uh, checkout was, was the most stressful bit. I took Lucy to get a snack, and <laughs> the, the soda machines didn't have ice, so they wouldn't sell us soda. <laughs> right. Um, she would have eaten drunk uh, a warm soda but gladly, they wouldn't sell it to you. but they wouldn't sell it to us. So we ended up getting ices finally after a long negotiation. Worst ice cream headache of my life. <laughs> it was the worst. Um, I it was so bad. Like I was, I was driving and I've got this ice cream headache. My my eyeball was literally aching. It was so it was so painful. I was trying to like suck it down quick because I was like I wanted to get rid of the cup so I could concentrate on driving. Don't don't do that, folks. Oh no. man. So then we went to. Uh, on the way home, we decided to stop for to get pho, pho uh, at our favorite Vietnamese place. It's Lucy's favorite, so we promised her that that would be her compensation for being stuck at home with us. And, I mean, t- tough life for us. So we, we go to the place, and I, I love pho. I really do. And it's almost to my detriment, because every time I, get, I, can, I can get it, that's what I order. And there's so much other good stuff on the menu. Yeah, I like exploring the rest of the menu. I know, I know. Although I've kind of settled on the um, the shrimp cake and the pork chop and crusty bean wrap is my my favorite thing. Oh yeah, well over ri- the rice bowl uh, thing. Yeah, sometimes I get it. Sometimes I get the the rice. Sometimes I get the vermicelli bowl. Um, they have different options depending on like like. You don't have the same collections of meats in the vermicelli bowls versus the combinations. The combinations yeah. are different. It's kind of weird that the combinations are different, that they they don't want it. They, yeah, because you like the shrimp cake, the pork chop, and the the bean curd, yeah, the crispy bean curd, yeah. But they only had that combination with the rice, not with the noodle. 
I wonder if you. No, you no, could, no. They had the, the. They had a. Oh, the only two of them. Um. Yeah, I didn't actually get the combination of meats that I wanted because I really wanted rice, not noodles. The other way around. Oh, okay, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It was good though. I like it. Okay. Yeah. It was good. You let me taste some, and it was really, really tasty. Yeah, the, the pork chop was mm, grilled to perfection, very thin sliced, and then the with the sweet sauce, like a sweet savory sauce. Yeah, then the shrimp cake is so good. Oh, yeah. I just love it. Yeah, it's like shrimp that's made into a paste and then made flat, and then they put like it in a wrapper of like rice bean wrapper, bean wrapper, a bean wrapper, and then fry it. And it's like crunchy, and oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's really good. You ever get a chance to try it out? So we did that, and then um, yeah, then today I I uh, got up early and drove forty five minutes to go grab them, and uh, they were pretty tired. They were very tired. I thought that it would take a miracle to get them all to mass, and we had a miracle, folks, because all all five kids managed to go to mass, and I don't even know how that happened because Sophie was in the shower at like a quarter till. Quarter till, and I'm we like, have to leave. Mass is at ten thirty. We have to leave the house by ten ten. Yeah, and and Bella hadn't got into the shower yet, and Bella said she absolutely refused to go to mass unless she had a shower first. And I'm thinking, there's no way. But yeah, they, Ben was like, Ben up was in his like, blanket. Ben was like in his bed, wanting to go back to sleep, and I'm like, no, you have to get up and go to church. Uh, but we all made it, which is good. I'm not sure how awake everyone was, but That's, we were all there. You know, I figure like, God understands if you're nodding off. Yeah, you, you're making the effort. So <clears throat> I've been nodding off so many times in my life. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the parenting thing, you know, there's there's a season in parenting where you're basically going through life half awake anyway. So yeah, you're like the walking dead, really. Yeah, I'm surprised the society functions. It's amazing. So, uh, yeah, so that was, that's what's been going on. And, um, we got a big week coming up though. Um, you're, you and the, uh, three older girls, two, two older, older girls, girls. <laughs> there were only it's... three girls, you and the two older girls are headed out of town. Yeah. We're, we're heading to, um, Austin, my native city, because my sister-in-law, my brother's wife is having a baby shower and, um, First baby that isn't you from you. Yeah, this is the first baby on my my side of the family that isn't one of ours. So, um, super excited, super super excited to um, hang out with my sister in law and um, do family stuff and hopefully get some good Tex Mex while we're there. <laughs> it's been five years, right? I think we mentioned it's been yeah. five years. Yeah. So, and I'll be here with the three young ones. We'll be good. We'll have fun. I told them that we would go to barbecue and Tex Mex here. Which won't be as good, but you know we won't feel as bad. I don't think Lucy was so thrilled about that. Idea. I don't think Lucy really cares that much about the food. <laughs> she does. Lucy is a little bit in despair about spending the entire weekend with a house full of boys. Well, first she's like upset because she's by herself. Now she's get going to have two the two brothers. But yeah, whatever. She'll survive. Uh, th- th- I'm. Uh, she'll be staying with the fun parent, so she'll she'll, uh-huh. she'll have a good time. The fun part. It's going to be ice cream and movies and unlimited screen time. Okay. <laughs> you do you. No, they will not. It will not be that. So let's talk about, speaking of food, some food we've been making this week. Or you've been making. I've been making. I've been doing a lot of the cooking. So uh, tonight I made baked ziti. I had seen, I, well, for a long time I've been wanting to make baked ziti. I like baked pasta. And apparently I was under the misapprehension that Melanie did not like baked pastas. I have no idea where this apprehension came from. I I did not ever tell you that I don't. Like I must have slipped between uh, alternate dimensions. Something some like point. that. So uh, I saw this is great YouTube channel, um, the Orsara Recipes. I must, I must have um, talked about it once before, but it's this guy. Oh, what is his name? Um, he's an old Italian guy. And... Uh, let's see. Let me look it up. Uh, Orsara. I, I, I got to get his name. Um, uh, Pasquale Scarapa. And he's like off the boat from the city of Orsara in, in Italy. And so he makes these recipes, like all these great Italian recipes. And he was making this pasta al forno, which is baked ziti. 
And I'm like, I really want to make that. So uh, that's what I made. So it's really nice. It's really fun and easy. It's like lasagna without the fiddliness, like having to lay the layers. So it's it's pretty straightforward. You um you you, you get a pound of uh, ziti, so you you cook that up. And I'm just getting it up right now, the recipe. And uh, just so I want to make sure I have the the right saying the right thing here. So you make a meat sauce. So you uh, you take some. I took some sausages. He doesn't have sausages. He uses pork and beef, but I use like Italian sausage. I use sweet Italian sausage. I slice them open. You know the casing. You take them out of the casing. And I put them in the Dutch oven with a little bit of drizzle of olive oil, and then I cooked it, uh, crumbling it up with the with the edge of a spatula, of a you know a wooden spoon or a spatula, whatever, and let that cook so that it's uh, not browned anymore. Then you add in some tomato paste. I use you know table tablespoon or so of tomato paste. Mix that in. Then you add in garlic and onion. Let it cook for a few minutes. Then you take a whole cup of wine. Now he called for white wine, like a dry white. I don't, we didn't have any dry white wine right now, so I had to, I just use red. I think it worked fine. Uh, in fact, I, I I might actually like it a little better. So I, I usually throw, use red wine and red sauce. Yeah. So I threw in the uh, and then you let it cook for like four minutes. You you're really evaporating out all the alcohol and it's it's kind of cooking down. And then you add in uh, I use crushed tomatoes, a can of crushed tomatoes, and then salt and pepper. I added some basil some fresh thyme that we had in the fridge. Um, I think that was it uh, for herbs and things. And then you just let it simmer. And he was like, oh, simmer for an hour. I didn't have an hour. So, but I let it simmer while I started getting everything else together. So uh, I get the water to boil to cook the pasta. I preheat the oven to 400. And then I have some ricotta. So I have a, a tub of ricotta. It was like 15 ounces. Um Couple cups of mozzarella, shredded mozzarella. I just had the bag stuff, um, and then I grated up some Parmigiano Reggiano. He had he had called for Grana Padano, but you know it's the same thing. So um, you you take half of that, you set it aside. You take the other half, uh, well, all of the regatta and half of the grated cheeses. Put it that way, um, you, and you you take that and you add in an egg and some parsley and you mix them up and then you add some of the meat sauce to it and you mix it up and then you, you set some of it aside, some of that aside. So you got a couple bowls of set aside stuff and you take the cooked ziti, you throw it in the bowl with the big bowl, mix it together. You put a little sauce at the bottom of a 13 by nine. You put, you put the half of the ziti in the, the pan. Then you add sauce a layer of uh, the grated cheeses, uh, half of the stuff you'd set aside, and then the rest of the ziti, more sauce, rest of the grated cheeses, the rest of the um, the ricotta mix that you'd set aside, and then you bake it, um, and then you put more grated cheeses on top. I'll link to the recipe. You'll see his method. In any case, it's really good. <laughs> Everybody liked it, except for Lucy, who doesn't really like uh, pasta sauces and pastas no, and sauce. She really doesn't. But Ben liked it, and Ben usually doesn't like pasta sauce. Um, everybody else, pretty, I think, pretty much enjoyed it. Yeah, we, we, the most of it was gone. You didn't get a chance to eat eat it because you're you're developing a tomato allergy. Yeah, it's lovely. I Great. Love it. Thanks, thanks for that. It's not like we eat tomatoes a lot in this house. <laughs> So that was that was good. I was I was happy with that one. That we will definitely be making that again. Um, and then the other one was the a soup that I wanted to make a slow cooker white bean and tomato soup. This is uh, the 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 advantage. This one is slow cooker. So I started this one just after I, after lunch, and you take some uh, carrot, onion, fennel, which is one of the key ingredients in this. Uh, some garlic, salt, and pepper. You cook it in a skillet till it starts to brown. Then you add in some cannellini beans, canned cannellini beans, um, broth. This all goes in the slow cooker once it's sautéed. Then you add the beans, uh, chicken broth, uh, crushed tomatoes, thyme. This is why I had thyme. Um, salt. And then I added uh, sliced sausages. Uh, sliced uh, Italian sausage 
uh, because I wanted to have add a little more flavor and meats and substance to it. And then cook it on high, you know, on high for four hours or six hours on low. You know how most slow cookers are. It's like four, six, eight, or ten. So um, in four and six are high, and eight and ten are I mean, four and six are low. Eight and ten are other way around. Yeah, four hours longer is is lower. lower. That's right. Shorter is higher. Yep. In any case, I did it for six, the six hour one, um, and then at the end of it. Uh, you you take some Kalamata olives they chopped up, some ground fennel, some pepper flakes and parsley and olive oil, and you microwave, you, ch- you chop it all together, you microwave it and you heat it up. And what you're making is a drizzle sauce that will you'll drizzle onto the bowl at the table, which is really kind of good. Now you add it at the end once the, the sauce, the soup was done. One of the things you do when the soup is done is you take out a cup, a couple of cups of it and put it in a blender and blend it up. And because of the beans, it thickens up the soup right, really well. So um, we need to um, – we, so we had to do that. But then you thought about throwing some kale. We had some kale, throwing that in there, which I would have cooked longer, but it was okay. Oh, I like the kale. It's only Fresh. slightly cooked. Yeah. Okay. So we threw it in like at the end. chewy. So a little extra kale and sausage were added to it. Now, because you can't have tomatoes, at I what I ended up doing was I cooked it for a while, like for three hours without the tomatoes in it, and then I pulled out enough for you for your dinner of that soup without the tomatoes, and then then added tomatoes and let it cook for another two hours. So I did end up doing it for six hours instead of four. Um, but uh, that way you could have something. What did you think of the tomato list one? It was really good. Honestly, I I kind of wish you'd pulled aside, set aside more because I would have eaten it. Yeah. Um. I mean, I really like like the cannellini brothy soups. Um, and I, I actually think I, even if I had not had been able to eat the tomatoes, I think I would prefer it without tomatoes, honestly. Interesting. I mean, I really love a good tomato soup. I, I had, there was a lot of leftovers. Uh, most of the kids didn't really love the tomato soup, which is the downside. Um, but I ended up eating the leftovers. I just finished them off uh, today for lunch and um, making it grilled cheese to go with it. So I get grilled cheese sandwich and a tomato soup. Um, but yeah, I mean, next time I could try doing this without tomatoes and see if it's a, if kids like it any better. Um, I really like the drizzle thing, the, uh, the Kalamata fennel drizzle. Mm-hmm. I think that was, it was a nice touch. Uh, so, I mean, to, to be honest, I think that the, the, you probably lose that most of the kids had the beans, but you could try. Right. Lucy did like it better without the tomatoes. And I think Bella would have liked it. Liked it better without the tomatoes. So yeah, Bella <clears throat> actually I think she did say she liked it. With she tried yours and liked it without the tomatoes. She, she's she's not a huge tomato, right? Tomato person. Sophie doesn't really like soups, and Anthony and Ben. Well, they they pick through the things anyway. So all right, so that's what we've been cooking. One uh, that was a big hit. Another one not as much of a hit, but I think was still pretty good. So I'll put links to those in the uh, in the show notes. So let's talk about what we've been reading and watching. Um, I finished watching the first season of The Peripheral on Amazon Prime. This was a uh, adaptation of a cyberpunk novel by mm-hmm. I forget who, but um, it was pretty good. It was a little mind bendy. Um, this it's because it has to do with time travel and branching timelines and. How, what happens if you branch off? And so there's a little bit of like, uh, you know, and, and this is kind of like a reboot thing that happens at some point. And I don't know. I'm not, if I'm, if I'm buying it, there's also an annoying that the semi obligatory these days, annoying, non-traditional gender character. It's a dude dressed up as a woman that we're supposed to think as a woman. And it was like, as soon as I saw this, I knew right away it was, you know, it was this kind of character. So it's kind of annoying to to have that kind of shoved in there. It felt awkward. Like we're, we're intentionally throwing this thing in there. So I didn't like that, but um, it's, it's violent and 
uh, profane. There's a lot of bad language. Um, in fact, one of the episode titles is basically two curse words, uh, phrases. So, but, um, but it was interesting. One of the premises is that, uh, you know, it takes place in two different times in like 2030 and 2070 or the end of the century or something like that. But, um, in the 2030 timeline, there was a, uh, a Texas secession rebellion, apparently where they had to go fight against the, those Texans who rebelled those disloyal Texans. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) I thought that was interesting. Then, um, so that, but it's pretty good. I'm looking forward to season two because uh, there's an interesting story that's developed there. And then we watched with the kids, Ms. Marvel episode four, which is, I think, the best episode. Yeah, this is the one where um, we see the, a flashback to the events of the partition of India in Pakistan and um, Kamala Khan's family. Um, it, you know, her great grandmother and great grandfather and grandmother. Um, and that sort of, and that stuff was really good. There was, I really loved also the, just really this, this got into the relationships between mothers and daughters between Kamala and her mom and her mother and her grandmother. And there was this really nice parallelism and it really felt like it, it was about the women of the family coming together and reconciling these relationships which were rocky and like Kamala's relationship with her mom was was being affected by her mom's relationship with her mother. Right. This is the point at which Kamala's mom stops being a stereotypical immigrant mother who's overprotective and helicopter parenting to oh she's this way because of this specific situation and now she's overcoming that and and her, the mom becomes likable at this point. I mean, the mom was kind of likable before, but she becomes much more likable at this point. Yes. I mean, I, I think that the, actually this this episode makes Munibo one of my favorite characters. Yes. She, she becomes this really great mom who's who's willing to say, you know, I'm sorry. I, I've made some mistakes both to her mom and to her daughter. I mean, she, that's really like a, a yeah. great uh, character turning point she feels like a real mom she really does feel like a real mom i really yeah um you know she's not perfect but but she loves her her family and she's she's doing the best she can and i i love her her bon jovi obsession (laughs) it just it makes her so human and she you know talks about like her her life as a young person and you know kamala getting to see glam pictures of her mom from the 80s and there comes a point in life, usually for me it was in I think in my twenties, when you start hearing your parents' stories, you know the the crazy things they did, the stuff that they would never want you to know when they were, when you were in that stage of life that that they, they did. Yeah, and I really think I I mean this is one of the things that the the show does well is it does family well, mm. and um I really like. Kamala as a person who is part of a family. Right. I think that's the theme that, that they really develop well in this show. It may be the best family situation of any of the Marvel stories. I'm trying to think of if there's any, like she's got a, a, a mom and a dad at home in a normal situation, you know, they're, they're married and they're in a loving relationship and. And then her brother and his and brother and fiance, his wife, you know, and they are friends to, with, you know, they are normal brother and sister. They have their scrappiness, but they're still care for each other. I mean, it is a normal family. And you don't see a lot of those in MCU. There's a lot of loving relationships with like Ant-Man with his daughter, but there's a divorce in there. So it's 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 a broken relationship. You know, there's a lot of these, you know, w- weird, you know, unusual situations, shall we say. But in this one, it's a it is a regular nuclear family, and it's good. I like that. the The other thing I was going to say is the thing about this series is there's no there's no one who's been chosen for a role because they're eye candy. You know what I mean? Too too often, in I mean, they're don't get me wrong these these are attractive people. They're they're good. You know, they're they're conventionally good looking people, but they're not like 
chosen because they will be attractive to a certain demographic of male or female audience and that sort of thing. I mean, you know, Chris Hemsworth is a is a handsome man, you know, and part of the reason he's there is because he's he's beefcake or Scarlett Johansson. I mean, they're fine actors, but they're partly chosen for their looks. And I don't feel like I feel like the people who are in these roles, whether it's Kamala or the mom or the dad or you know, any of these roles, they're I mean, perhaps the most attractive person would be the Aisha character, like the great grandmother. Like I think feel like most of them are just chosen because they're good actors and they're good in the role. Um so I I, I kinda like that. I think it's makes a good uh impression on the kids as they watch it. They're seeing people who are more like them and not just these unattainable characters. Um, so that was good. I like it. And not, and not played for comic like um, Spider-Man's um, sidekick is, you know, he's, the, he's heavy. Ned. And, Ned. And so he's often because he's heavy, he's played for comedy. You know, this is a sort of trope in, in TV and movies. So it's, the heavy kid is the funny guy. You, you know, funny things happen to him. He's the comic relief. And I don't feel like it's that way in, in this one. So they've, they've done a good job with this. So uh, as far as reading things, I finished another of the Murderbot Diaries uh, novellas called Rogue Protocol. So I think it was the, that's the third one, I think. Yeah. Um, and we were just talking earlier and we both agreed, I think, that. I think it, it's the weakest of the series. Yeah, it's. um. It's sort of conventional, I think is the is the way I'd say it. There's nothing that makes it stand out. Like the the original Murderbot story was it was different. The tone was different. The personality was different. It was a, it was a different point of view, and it was kind of compelling because of it. This one was a much more conventional sci-fi story. I also felt I think that this one just maybe suffers from the middle book in the series. I mean, it's not exactly the middle because it's it's a series of novellas and it's more than just three books. But right. it kind of feels like the middle thing where we, we need to get from point A to point B and this is the way we get there. But the journey itself wasn't as compelling to me. There's a couple of things that are useful for the story overall. Like we're advancing the the overall plot of Murderbot's but the individual, origins. but the, but the specific story, like what Murderbot is like attempting to to do here, it just it didn't grab me. Yeah, I'd agree. This, I, I, the author, I think she's trying to expand the the universe a little bit. The you know that the, that the character lives in. Um, but you're right. Like it, it didn't. And it, none of the side, none of the the minor characters in this one also. Um, like I like in the second one, we meet the, the research, the research ship with the, the research transport, which has a great personality and they have a really good interaction. And I feel like Murderbot spends a lot of this time, this book, actually, maybe this is kind of key. Murderbot spends a lot of this book pretending to be human. Yeah. And not terribly successfully, but also keeping everyone at a distance. Like there's no real relationships that are formed here because Murderbot is just on a mission trying to accomplish a goal, interacting with people while not being itself and nobody knows that it's yeah a construct. And I think that that maybe that lessens the dramatic tension because there isn't that what makes Murderbot great is sort of watching it interact with other people, either other robots or other or people who know it's not human. Although in the second one, there was a group of people who thought it was human. And, but it was different there because it was a different kind of situation. It was still close to the people, even as it was trying to act. Whereas in this one, it was holding people at arm's length. Yeah. It really did not get close to any of the people it was working with. I think that was really key. I think the big thing in this one was, Another there was yet another AI, another um, artificial person, another robot that was very different from Murderbot and had related to people very differently. And I think that was maybe intended to sort of it was very also very different from the research ship in in the second book, and therefore almost the exact opposite. And therefore, it was trying to provide a contrast. I don't think it worked though. I mean, I think right. 
like the ideas are interesting. And I do see that like in the context of the overall series, that robot character moves Murderbot like forward. Mm-hmm. But as a story, it just didn't grab me as much. Right. But uh, I'm looking forward to continue to read. I've I've picked up some other books now. Uh, there's a book called Travels with George by Nathaniel Philbrick. This is a nonfiction book, and I'm in the process of reading that now. Where he's um, he's personally following along on the journey that George Washington took when he first became president. Washington toured the colonies. Thus, we have all of those George Washington slept here stories. Washington famously toured the colonies. I don't think I knew that. I mean, yeah. I knew that the, the George Washington slept here thing, but I didn't really know why. Yeah. And so there was, he took several trips. And so the author, Philbrick, he and his wife and their dog are journeying along the same places, going to the same places. So it's not, it's, it's a little bit of a history book. It's a little bit of a travel memoir. Um, so I'm not far, very far into it. It's just at the beginning. Um, and, He's wrestling throughout it. He's kind of wrestling with the man and the myth of George Washington in this idea of, is he the great, the great father of our nation? Well, of course, but how do we reconcile that also with slave ownership? And even like his, he admit, he points out like his slave ownership is complicated and it's, you know, it's, 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 he's a human being. So there's a lot of different things going on. And so, he, yes, he was against, he was for abolition. He was against slavery and yet he owned his slaves. Yet he freed them when he died, but he only freed them when he died instead of, you know, so there's this whole um, complex look at this man. Uh, so I'm curious. I've liked Philbrick's other books, so I'm looking forward to reading this one. But I kind of taken a bit of a detour having started that because I found out that Jim Butcher the author of the Dresden Files had a short story that neither you or I had read. It came and, out like earlier this year, like back in March or April. Yeah, like March or April, May. Uh, the it's a compilation of short stories called Heroic Hearts, and the story itself is called Little Things. And we 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 were talking about this. One of the things we like about Butcher's short stories is he takes. Almost always takes minor characters from the main novels, the fourteen main novels so far, and expands on them and gives them the focus. I like I, right. And it I like, really fleshes out the world. Um, he also fleshes out the characters themselves, like they become less flat, more rounded people, like seeing from their point of view. But I also think that one of the things that they do is they let us see our protagonist, Harry Dresden, from another point of view because. The novels are first-person narrative. We're always inside Harry's head. Right. And the short stories are a way of triangulating, and we see Harry as other people see him. True. And it's the only time we see him as other people see him. And Harry, like all of us, you know, lies to himself at times or omits things in his first-person narrative. Right. And so there, so this, this novel is, or this, this short story, rather, yeah is told from the point of view of Harry's uh, fairy minion, uh, General Toot Toot, <laughs> which is a silly, irreverent name, which Harry bestowed on this character, who was very comic relief when he first shows up. He shows up in the I think I, I think we're both were saying the first novel. I think it's in the first book. Very early in the first novel, even. And he was like, like he was a comic relief kind of throwaway character. It's just like, like. Harry needs some information. And so, you know, the deus ex machina by which he gets some information is he calls on the fairies and he pays them in pizza. Right. They love pizza. The fairy. Um, and and but the fairies over the course of the novels become Dresden's Baker Street Irregulars. Yeah. What, what the Baker Street Irregulars are to Sherlock Holmes. These fairy characters are they're small and not very powerful and inconspicuous. And everybody underestimates them because they're little. Yet Tutu sees himself as the captain of the the uh, guard of the Za Lord. Uh, he's Harry is the pizza lord, the Za Lord. Um, yes, yeah, Tutu's uh, language is very primitive, and he doesn't always understand English. Well, he gets words wrong, like in this short story. Um, 
Harry is worried about the economy, which Tutu renders as economy. Economy. The the great the great monster, the economy that has we have to we have to fight. Harry's very worried about it because Harry, uh, the wizard, fights monsters, and if Harry's worried about something, it must be a monster. So, um, and this is a it's a great little short story. Uh, that kind of fleshes out that character, fleshes out a little bit of what we know about Harry and what's going on with him at this stage of the story, of the overall story. When this is also, um, since the last novel, we haven't really, we've had a couple of short stories that fill in some of the gaps of like what happened at the end of the the novel. Um, And so this is another of those, like Mm -hmm. what happened after the big battle of Battleground. Right. There's another short story that I want to check out in another collection coming out next next year, uh, next March. Um, it's it's an anthology called uh, Instinct and Animal Rescues Anthology. And this one features Mouse, which is Harry's dog. T- yeah, well, it's a Tibetan temple dog, which they're a real thing. If you looked them up online, they're these massive fluff balls. I think it's called a Tibetan Mastiff. Tibetan Mastiff. Right, right. And Mouse is very intelligent, like human intelligent. And apparently in the story, he teams up with Cerberus, the Hound of Hell, because something has escaped from Hell. And Cerberus is supposed to guard the gates of Hell to make sure nothing escapes. So I'm, I'm sure that's what that's that's going to be an interesting, fun story uh, to to read. So and then you said you finished a book, The Great Passage. Yeah, I've been reading lots of like bits and pieces of books all over the place. It's one of those weeks. But I did finish one novel called The Great Passage by Shion Miura, Miura uh, who's a Japanese uh, author. It's a book written in Japanese and translated into English. And I read one of her books this summer um, about a young man who goes to become a forester in Kamasura. I can never remember the name. Um, anyway, the great passage is a story about dictionaries and the people who make them. And, uh, so we start off with one character who is trying to, he, he has a dream, an ambition of creating a new Japanese dictionary. And it's going to be called the great passage, uh, because a dictionary takes you on a journey through the sea of, over the sea of words. And, a lot of the dictionaries that they're mentioned, because it talks about other dictionaries, too. Uh, a lot of the dictionaries have these great imaginative titles. They sound more like novels than hmm. dictionaries. And I don't know if this is a peculiarity of Japanese culture. Um, it's interesting because it's a novel that's very much about words, but it's been translated. And so sometimes the translator, when the meanings of the Japanese and English words are similar enough, just uses the English equivalent. Like when they're talking about the definition of dog. Right. For example, um, evidently there's enough cultural similarities in terms of not only what a dog is, but how they think about dogs being loyal and companions and that sort of thing that it translated. Well, there's quite a few places where they're talking about the word and they're using the Japanese word or phrase because there is no English equivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a romance in it. It's kind of a light novel. It's not it's not a heavy novel. But um, one of the characters is very geeky guy who's working in the advertising wing of the publishing company. And he gets pulled in to work on this um, dictionary. And the dictionary's department kind of has a is very low guy on the totem pole in the publishing company. Mm. Because dictionaries cost a lot to make. And don't sell that much. Right. Um, but they're kind of prestigious, too. So so every dic- every publishing company wants to have a prestigious dictionary. Right. Um, but during the course of the novel, they end up working on all of these other projects like a, you know, a sort of special dictionary for like a video game with the, the vocabulary for that world. Mm. You know, kind of like the the uh, Harry Potter um, books that like take you through the Potterverse sort of book. Right. You get the feeling of and and some like student dictionaries and other these like niche projects that the publishing company wants done more. And so through the course of the novel, the main character falls in love, writes a painfully long 15 page love letter Uh. to the girl he's in love with. Um, You have several side characters whose point of view you see 
him through. Um, and the the course of the novel takes place over like more than a decade. Like he goes from the newbie in the department to being the head of the department. And um, one of the characters who's been working on this dictionary and it's his lifelong project gets sick and goes into the hospital. And there, there's this like sort of push of, are we going to be able to get the dictionary done before he, he dies? And there was a lot of really great human moments um, mm-hmm. And then we see another new person come into the department who doesn't really know anything about dictionaries or care, but then comes to be passionate about the project. There are some moments which feel very Japanese in terms of the the company culture, the group culture. Um, at one point, they realize that a mistake has been made and an important word has been left out of the dictionary when they're reading through the galley proofs. Oh. The word for blood is not there. And like, you can't, you know, it would be bring shame to us if this was published without like this very important word. So then they have to go through and read through the entire dictionary and check to make sure every word on their cards is in the the galley proofs. And so they get this army of college students who come in and work like they're camping in the office for weeks. Nobody goes home. They're doing coin-op laundry and, and eating in the office while they're working on this dictionary day and night. And I just can't imagine that happening in an American company, right. in an American context. It feels very Japanese to me. Huh. Um, and there's there's a great, like, there's a lot about food because um, the love interest is a chef. And so you have two people who are very passionate about very different things. The guy who's passionate about words and dictionaries and the woman who is passionate about food and cooking. And they make a nice pair pairing and contrast. It was mm-hmm. a fun book. I really, really, um, really liked it. And as a person who loves words and loves, you know, precisions of words and, and the poetry of words, I liked the idea of like, what what we're putting in this dictionary, you know, can change lives. It can, it, it makes a difference. And the words we use matter and how we define them matters. Um, mm-hmm. it, I like that the title is a kind of a pun, a play on words, because, you know, the great passage is, you know, it's a dictionary is a boat that carries across the sea of words. So a journey, there's a kind of a journey in the novel, as you mentioned, that they could journey to complete the 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 dictionary. But great passage is also something we like a passage is a section of a story. Oh, right. So so trying to find the perfect section of the story to illustrate each word. Right. Or the story itself is a great passage, like a great part of a whole of a bigger story. You know, we're, we're seeing a subsection of the entire journey of the dictionary. Yeah. You know, so I kind of like the the connotations there. As we were preparing for the show, we we're looking on Amazon and it turns out there's this actual, a, um, there's an anime that was made based on the great passage, which I'm, I am now determined. I I must watch. Yes. This will be a a future, future review on this show. We'll talk about that. Uh, it's it's kind of, kind of fun. It came out in 2016, which was before the, um, before the book was translated, before the book was translated into English. I wonder if, if the exist, like the, the, the way, the fact that this book has moved from, um, book to to anime might might have pushed it higher in the list of books to translate into english well plus you had the translation issues that you were talking about which you know the, the challenges as well yeah um so yeah i i love di- books that take me on a journey into other places other cultures that are completely different from mine and yet seeing those similarities that like the passions are the same even if the culture is different the people mm. are are people. I, I just, people are people. Yep. Cool. So that's called and, the Great and, Passage. Yeah. And and word nerds are word nerds, <laughs> no matter what culture they're from. So uh just to bring us to a head this week, uh, to the to the high point of the show, we want to talk about uh, the the readings for the second Sunday of Advent. Um the just as a refresher, the first reading was from Isaiah eleven talks about the the shoot that shall sprout from the stump of Jesse. Um, And we have a gospel reading that's about John the Baptist crying out in the desert. This is the uh, John the Baptist enters the picture. John the Baptist has entered the chat. 
<laughs> uh-huh. But uh, you know, prepare a voice of one cry on the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. It's interesting. So Father, what was Father Oliver? I don't remember. Not one of the usual priests, but he's one of the African priests that, that help out at a parish. And um, he, he was focused a lot on the first reading and talks about this, the the Jewish idea, the Old Testament idea of the Messiah, the, the what with the Jewish people who, you know, John the Baptist was speaking to what they were expecting in a Messiah. And they were expecting a king. They were looking for an earthly ruler who was going to be like David or Saul, who, you know, a, a king chosen by God to lead the people. Right. And one of the things I liked that the father pointed out, which I don't think I've heard anyone say so explicitly, is Saul was the first Messiah. Yeah. Like, literally, Messiah means anointed king. And so in the culture, Messiah didn't mean only future king, only some future savior. It meant it was something we've had before in the past and will have again in the future. Right. Um, so... We, in Judaism, there's multiple messiahs. Yeah. Right. So Messiah isn't a one and only one time deal. Saul was a messiah. David was a messiah. Solomon was a messiah. Right. And um, even today, you'll hear Jews who talk about um, the various messiahs throughout you know the last few thousand years, even um, in even in recent centuries, you know, that guy was a messiah, that guy was a messiah, that sort of idea. They were anointed. They were they were sent. They had special roles right whereas in christianity we've There's come one messiah. to yeah we've come to think of that term as being a sort of one and only jesus is the messiah but i think that maybe we lose like i know i feel like when he brought that up i was like yeah that makes sense in terms of trying to understand how people in the first century reacted to jesus and responded to him what they were expecting was not a was not what they got was right. not what we think of when we hear the word messiah like our cultural baggage from the last 2000 years of christian history makes it hard for us to hear that word in the way that the users at the time would have understood the word right speaking of the importance of language yes language uh, and meaning so yeah so they were expecting a king and um so father talked about uh, when the when the king would come, he would bring absolute peace with him. Right. This is the prophecy of Isaiah from the first reading. What does Isaiah paint as the prophesied king? What is the prophesied king supposed to do? Right. He would come from the root of the stock of Jesse. So he was going to come from that family, from David's house. Um, he would be a king of justice. Um, and then he would bring the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like Isaiah is laying out here the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, and strength, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Um, so we have these gifts of the Holy Spirit that were that are outlined for us here. And um, then Father talked about how uh, that the section about the animals that are normally opposed to each other, right? Like the Messiah is bringing a sort of supernatural peace. Yes, not just. Not just a peace in terms of like a cessation Ab of warfare. Right, an absence of war. But but a return to the peacefulness of the Garden of Eden, the peacefulness before the fall. Yes. When everything is in harmony, the entire universe created world is in harmony. Yeah, he, he had a special note for the the verse where the baby shall play by the cobra's den, the child shall lay his hand on the adder's lair. And Father says... Uh, in Africa, fear of the snake is the beginning of wisdom. Like snakes in Africa, snakes are very, very bad. <laughs> right. Well, we were just the kids and I were just reading a list of the 10 most venomous snakes in the world. Mm -hmm. And several of them were in Africa and sounded quite scary. Oh, yeah. Um, so the idea that uh, the, the fear of the snake is beginning of wisdom, he said, because uh if you don't fear the snake and you get bitten, you're dead and you can't become wise. <laughs> you, you will not attain wisdom if you are bit by the snake. Right. And and you made a point about how Jesus, like that child, 
and you know well the interesting thing is from the from the gospel today john the baptist is calling the pharisees a brood of vipers which is interesting when you put it next to isaiah where it says isaiah says the child will put his hand in the mouth of the viper and right. here's john calling the pharisees the brood of vipers and here is jesus the prophesied child from genesis who he he puts himself in the power of the Pharisees of the brood of vipers. Well, he certainly enters the, the their lair. Right. Well, but he. I mean, they, they, he hands him lets himself be handed over to be killed mm-hmm. by the vipers. Right. And so the piece is not necessarily of the of the first reading is not necessarily a piece in the sense of nothing bad happens, but a piece maybe that whatever bad happens, good results. The ultimate good results. Right. I mean, it's kind of, when we think about peace, I mean, that, the prophecy about the peace of the Messiah will bring, this return to Eden, is one of the reasons, like, when I was reading the gift of, uh, the My Name is Asher Lev, actually, last week, when he's talking about the Christian's understanding of the Messiah, one of the things that they kind of think about is like, well, look around at the world. Does it look like the Messiah has come yet? Right. Like, where's the where's the kingdom of peace? Where where are the lions lying down with the lambs? We still have wars and and horrible wars. So where is the I mean, I think that's a challenge for us to see like the peace is now and yet not now. It's here and yet in some sense, we're still waiting for the perfect fulfillment of that prophecy. There's also an element that he, where he talks about how um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to the baptisms that John was performing in the desert, by the, you know, in the Jordan. And he, and he tells me, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. And, you know, we get to sit here and go, yeah, you bad guys who warned you guys to flee from the coming wrath. And Father kind of turned around, challenged, like, you know, are we that different from the Pharisees? Well, Father basically said that if John the Baptist was here today, he would be saying the same things to us because we are the Pharisees. In in, in many ways, we could, we are the Pharisees. Yeah, we, you know, I mean, this, in the big ways you see in the news, it's hard to avoid. You know, the church is, you know, church's leaders, the church's people, often hypocritical, believing. You know, we say we believe one thing and we do another or we, you know, reject our own church's teachings, the teachings of Jesus, um, that sort of stuff. Um, it, but also even in personal ways, with our, our own sinfulness, are we are we Pharisees when we commit sin? Are we um, talking out of both sides of our mouth with our faith in Christ? Are we are we truly faithful? Are we li- trying to live that? Are we mouthing the platitudes? To, to you know make ourselves feel better this is a time advent is is a great time to look at our hearts and reconcile with god and um change metanoia was a word that father was using to metanoia is a 180 degree change to to turn things around and that's to change our hearts and advent is a great time to to think about that and to do that so and all of us need that change. It's not just those guys over there, but right, right. But it's us. We here. all need a change. Me, yeah. We need to. We all need to look at our hearts. I mean, they, we're the only ones. It's it's a it's a great sport to tell other people how wrong they are, how how sinful they are, um, especially to to tell bishops how how bad they are. <laughs> but a lot of people like to do that online these days. But really, the the ones we should really be looking at is ourselves. How wrong are am I? How what you know? What do I need to change about myself? Uh, the great G.K. Chesterton quote. You know, um, someone asked him, "What's wrong with the church today?" And what's wrong with said, the world today? What's wrong with the world today? Right, me. I'm what's wrong with the world. And, and by saying that, what he's really saying is the only person I can really change is myself. And I need. I'm no saint. I need to change myself. But also, if everybody looked within themselves and changed themselves, then the world would be... Would be a better place. Yeah. And the world would be a better place. 
Boy. Yeah. yeah, my brain went there too. Amy. I'm just not the one singing. <laughs> All right. We better end there before uh, we get a takedown notice. So we'd like to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Raising the Bets, including Jude H., Salvatore P., Elisha R., Nash C., and Jimmy C. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Raising the Bets and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Follow Raising the Bets in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the StarQuest YouTube channel, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Until next time, I'm Dom Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Raising the Bets on StarQuest. Hi, everyone. This is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of StarQuest, with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Now we need your generous financial support to reach new audiences with more of the life-changing and uplifting programming we've been creating for more than a decade. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you are already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas. And remember that your gifts may be tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season.